0: From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, amniotic membrane grafts in Stevens-Johnson syndrome, part one.
1: You can get sloughing of the entire surface of the globe, including the cornea, so all of the bulbar conjunctiva. You can get sloughing of the tarsal conjunctiva, the lid margins, and lashes and all of the eyelid uh, external skin can slough off. First this.
0: As Seen From Here reaches, ophthalmologists in 98 countries transfers more than half a terabit of podcasts every month. But the potential audience is much larger. Please tell your colleagues about this free resource flattening the ophthalmic world. And while you're at it, let your residents and fellows know about Open Ophthalmology, a free basic science video podcast already a force in ophthalmic education with 1,800 viewers watching 6,000 video lectures every month. Information wants to be free. Help me give it away. Stevens-Johnson syndrome and the related toxic epidermal necrolysis can produce lifelong deleterious sequelae. Some of these sequelae are anatomical and recalcitrant to therapy. Darren Gregory describes an opportunity to avoid these sequelae by managing the acute syndrome with amniotic membrane grafting. The interview was lengthy and I'll present it in two podcasts. Today, we'll hear part one of my conversation with Darren Gregory. By way of background, what is the pathophysiology of Stevens Johnson syndrome, and how does Stevens Johnson syndrome differ from TEN from toxic epidermal necrolysis?
1: Well, the basic difference between the two is 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 the extent of skin involvement. Uh, Stevens Johnson syndrome uh, involves less than ten percent of the skin body surface area being involved. Then there's in the nomenclature there's sort of an overlap between ten and thirty percent where they'll call it Stevens Johnson TEN overlap. And then if there's greater than thirty uh, percent skin involvement it's it qualifies as, as toxic epidermal necrolysis. The the morphology is essentially the same. They get blistering of the skin, but in toxic epidermal necrolysis it's much more extensive and as a result of the more extended skin loss, the patient's at more risk for getting septic uh, and dying, or also dying from, you know, uh, fluid or volume issues uh, that are hard to maintain. The underlying pathophysiology is still not completely understood, uh, but the final common pathway in both diseases is basically a, a kind of a cytokine storm that occurs in the deep layers of the epidermis and you you get massive apoptosis, sort of programmed cell death of the keratinocytes in the deeper layers of the epidermis, so you get blistering and sloughing of the epidermis. It doesn't really affect the dermis so that that you don't get you know bad scarring. Uh, The skin eventually will heal in, usually perhaps with some discoloration, but usually not uh, dense scarring like you would see in a, in a third-degree burn. It's, it's more like a second-degree burn. But there's a, there's a number of postulated mechanisms, uh, whether it's you know, tumor necrosis factor or uh, there's a, a ligand on cell surface, the fast ligand uh, receptor, that the fast ligand can get uh, produced by white blood cells and, and bind to cells and, and trigger the apoptosis process. But it's still the final thing is that there's basically a cytokine storm, huge amounts of cytokines uh sort of being released in the deep layers of the epidermis and causing the sloughing of the of the the epidermis.
0: Darren, what are the recognized triggers? What is the natural history of the disease if if you know if not treated? And uh what are the typical ophthalmic manifestations?
1: Sure. Um the most common trigger is, is probably medi- an adverse reaction to a medication. Uh, there's a, a number of, just about every medication you can think of has been, has a case report or has been implicated in some fashion, but the more common ones, I think in the literature and also in my own experience, would certainly uh, sulfa is probably probably at or near the top of the list. Uh, I've also had a few cases with uh, phenytoin and uh more recently we've had we've had a fair number with a medicine that's used for bipolar disorder called lamotrigine the uh the trade name in, in the states is Lamictal uh, and we've seen a number with that but uh also you could, mycoplasma pneumonia uh, uh has been implicated as a cause and we've we've had a few cases of that particularly in kids uh, but Sometimes it seems to follow a viral illness, or there's, the person wasn't on any medications, and, we, and it's almost idiopathic, which is problematic because in, uh, down the road the person's not sure what to avoid uh, to avoid triggering it again. Now, but medications are by far and away the, the most common implicated trigger. The the natural history of the disease varies; it can vary a lot in its severity, but uh, it tends the skin tends to begin healing anywhere from uh, 10 to 14 days. In most cases, the skin will start to heal in. So, Some severe cases can certainly uh, have persistent uh, skin problems you know, lasting. We've had people where their skin problems lasted you know, over a month. Uh, and those are pretty severe cases. But the skin tends to heal in. Often the skin will begin to heal before the mouth and eyes So I often, you know, I tell the families, uh, you know, just because the skin is getting better doesn't mean we're out of the woods as far as the eye goes. Uh, And I often, uh, the first thing I look at is the mouth. If the mouth is a mess, uh, it concerns me about the eyes uh, because they seem to correlate much better. Uh, There's a number of studies uh, that have been published in the last couple of years looking at the severity of the overall systemic involvement in the disease as well as the extent of skin involvement and cor- trying to correlate that with the severity of of eye damage or the acute eye findings, and uh, it has, they haven't been shown to correlate. So you may have a case where there's very mild skin involvement and severe eye involvement, or you may have a case that uh, has you know severe skin involvement but not much going on in the eye. So you, you can't just go by the skin. the The problem is that the eyes over time the mucosal tissues on the eyes get replaced by more of a keratinized scar tissue. And so the people end up, even though their skin has healed in fairly well, they end up with severe dry eye problems. Some have speculated, and there's uh, been studies published suggesting that there can be sort of a chronic form of the disease that uh, sort of mimics cicatricial pemphigoid. I I tend to disagree. My, my thought is that Uh, it's kind of a one-time hit, and you get severe damage to the mucosa at the onset, and then the longer-term problems are all a result of that. And in in one study out of, I think it was out of Moorfields in England, uh, they suggested that some patients with Stevens-Johnson may not manifest much on the eyes initially, but may have problems down the road, suggesting that a chronic issue, but my suggestion would be that perhaps those patients weren't fully evaluated, as far as looking deep in the fornix and looking at the tarsal conch for for sloughing that may have been evident in the acute phase but not appreciated. And on the eyes, you basically you get sloughing of you can get sloughing of the entire surface of the globe, including the cornea, so all of the bulbar conjunctiva. You can get sloughing of the tarsal conjunctiva, the lid margins and lashes, and all of the eyelid. Uh, external skin can slough off and it can be quite variable in the extent Um, and and long term that can lead to all sorts of scarring problems uh, with abnormal eyelash positioning that can abrade the eye destruction of the goblet cells and uh, the microscopic lacrimal glands on the surface of the eye as well as scarring of the the major lacrimal uh, gland orifices so that you can end up with a very severe dry eye problem uh, painful dry eye problem uh, and you know damage to the cornea. you can get limbal stem cell damage, uh, whether it 's from the acute disease or ongoing damage from the severe dry eye and mechanical abrasion of the eye by the scarred sulchnddri eye each time they blink so it can it can become a real problem, and those problems those chronic long term problems are really really difficult to fix.
0: What are the established treatments, both the systemic treatments and, and ocular treatments?
1: There there aren't really any. Uh, the only s- systemic treatment that has been established is that patients with any significant skin involvement should be cared for in a, a burn-intensive care unit or a center that's familiar with the, the needs of a patient who's lost a lot of their skin. Um, and yeah, you know, there have been a number of all sorts of uh, systemic treatments tried from intravenous immunoglobulin, corticosteroids, various immunosuppressants, um and nothing that's been shown definitively to be effective in you know, whether it's the with the overall systemic course of the disease or the the eye manifestations. Um corticosteroids have have shown some promise in some studies, but other older studies suggested, that they might increase the mortality. So they they remain a bit controversial. On the eyes, the only, the only treatments that have been, where there's published studies establishing anything are uh, systemic corticosteroids and topical corticosteroids may have some benefit. Uh, there was a study out of Japan about a year ago uh, where they had five patients that they began treatments with intravenous methylprednisolone Uh, I think it was 1,000 milligrams a day for, uh, I believe, five days. And uh, those patients didn't show any eye damage. They also treated the surface of the eyes with uh, topical steroids, uh, anywhere from every couple hours to something like four times a day. Uh, And and none of the patients suffered damage. Only one of those patients had toxic epidermal necrolysis. Uh, The other four had Stevens-Johnson. And the eye involvement by their description was relatively severe, uh, but the key to their their study was you had to initiate the treatment within four days of the onset of symptoms, and you had to establish that it wasn't an infectious cause like mycoplasma, which and that can sometimes be tricky to establish that in the time frame that they required for their study. So I don't know that you can apply their their findings to all cases. It might be difficult at times. The amniotic membrane has been described. Uh, the first case report was in Stevens-Johnson syndrome was in 2002. There were six subsequent, or five subsequent, case reports after that one, all with slightly different methods, uh, but all with fairly good outcomes in eyes that, uh, by the description in the cases, had pretty severe involvement. There was also a, a case series published uh, last summer in the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Uh, the lead author was Kimberly Sippel at uh, Cornell, and they had six cases, uh, somewhat limited follow-up on some of them, uh, but uh, none of them with the disastrous outcomes that you can see in the disease, and they had all been treated with amniotic membrane uh, within you know, within the first week to 10 days of the onset of the illness.
0: Let me get you to describe the design of your study there.
1: Yeah, you know, I've been a pretty prolific photographer Uh, taking pictures of my cases uh, throughout the course of their disease and uh, starting from the first case that we did about five years, almost five years ago now and uh, keeping in touch with the patients and following up and so we had ten consecutive patients who had severe eye involvement uh, and whom we treated uh, the eyes with amniotic membrane grafting to the eyelids and in some fashion to the surface of the eyeball itself. And we had at least six months of follow-up on each of those. Uh, So it wasn't a prospective or randomized study, but it was a a review of 10 consecutive cases treated in that fashion. And we ended up, we looked at their visual outcomes, severity of dry eye symptoms, and the severity of ocular surface damage. And we used, for the ocular surface damage grading, uh, we used a A grading system that was uh, proposed by a group out of Japan. It was a multi center study. uh, A bit of an elaborate grading system, but looking at scarring of the eyelid margins, uh, the conjunctiva, uh, both the tarsal conjunctiva and the bulbar conjunctiva, and also any corneal or limbal stem, signs of limbal stem cell damage. And so we we did the grading and the visual outcomes, and uh, the dry eye severity was based on the the DEWS report from the Tear Monocular Surface Society, as well as uh, just a, a brief questionnaire, a validated questionnaire on the presence of symptoms.
0: Darren, let me get you to walk me through a, a typical surgery. I, I've used amniotic membrane grafts in pterygium surgery, but I imagine that this milieu is, is quite different.
1: Uh, it's, it is, and it and I mean, if you're familiar with the cryopreserved amniotic membrane you know, it, it, it's the same stuff. I, I use the cryopreserved and not the freeze-dried. Um, I, I don't know of any studies, published studies, uh, you know, that look at the use of uh, the freeze-dried form, and I don't know whether it's in pterygium surgery or other uses. Uh, so I, I use the cryopreserved forms because it's certainly much more established in the literature. And we uh, basically uh, we trim the eyelashes. First steps, trim the eyelashes down as close to the skin as possible, so they don't, so that we can get the membranes in good contact with uh, with the skin. In accompanying the article that was in Ophthalmology in May, uh, there is a video link that will show in detail uh, the video aspect, the each step of the case with an audio description, uh, so that can augment any anything I'm saying here, but. I use it, um, I, I take a 3.5 centimeter square of the amniograft uh, amniotic membrane that we get from, uh, in the U.S., the only supplier is biotissue. Uh, in other countries, I think they, a lot of, will just locally produce it uh, from their labor and delivery wards. But we, I take a 3.5 centimeter square of it, cut it in half, and I lay the stromal surface, which is against the, the filter paper that it comes on, I lay the stromal surface against the skin uh, on the external skin of the of one of the eyelids. We usually end up starting with the lower eyelid. And then uh, we, starting maybe a millimeter or two from the lid margin, we do a running stitch, usually with an 80 nylon, and tack it down there. And then we drape it over the lid margin and tuck the rest of the sheet down into the fornix against the tarsal conjunctiva. Then I take a couple of double-armed... 6O proline sutures and I'll uh, on the one half of the eyelid I'll pass both sutru- both needles through uh, through the membrane and all the way through the the eyelid to fasten the membrane against the tarsal conjunctiva and I'll do one for each on the lateral half of the the eyelid and another one on the medial half and we just tie them over a bolster externally on the skin so they don't cheese wire. We try to pass the sutures as deep as we can in the fornix, but still go through the membrane, so that it, you get good apposition of the membrane to the inflamed uh, tarsal conjunctival surface. So we do that for each of the eyelids, and then if uh, if there's ex, you know extensive uh, inflammation and and sloughing, which we we grade the sloughing by fluorescein staining, uh, and the extent of fluorescein staining. Uh, If there's extensive sloughing on the surface of the eye, we'll cover the whole surface with a full sheet, a 3.5-centimeter square of the membrane. If there's just some corneal involvement and very limited bulbar conjunctival involvement, then we'll put a Prokera on. It's basically like a a big contact lens almost made out of amniotic membrane that you can set set on the eye that will protect the cornea. It doesn't cover much of the bulbar conjunctiva, though, so if there's extensive involvement there, I like to use a full sheet and cover the whole surface. The key is to treat the lids. Just putting a Procara on the eye uh, is not sufficient, and I've seen two or three cases that went quite badly, ended up with a lot of problems that just had a Procara and nothing else. So it's crucial. There are published studies showing that uh, the lid margin and the tarsal conjunctiva, the, the scarring and damage there is one of the key problems that leads to the, the long-term damage in the disease. So we, if we don't use the ProCare and we, and we cover the whole surface of the eye, we basically set the sheet down with the stromal surface against the eye. I put a dot with a surgical marking pen right in the middle of the the membrane uh, so I can kind of keep track of where where it is so I don't get it scooched too far to one side or the other. And we use a 10 nylon running stitch and we take uh, – use conjunctival or episcleral bites uh, and do a running stitch about a millimeter posterior to the limbus all around 360 degrees around the cornea. Before we do anything on the surface of the eye, I put drops of 1 to 1,000 epinephrine onto the eye to, to limit the bleeding. Hmm. Bleeding under the membrane, it gets hard to see where you're passing your stitch. If you do get a little bleeding, I'll reflect the membrane onto itself to lift it off the area of bleeding and rinse the blood out before it clots because it'll tend to cause the membrane to wrinkle up onto itself and it gets a little harder to work with. So once we get it fastened at the limbus, then I'd, I'll put a an interrupted stitch usually in each oblique quadrant. We'll rotate the eye uh, to expose that quadrant. So if I'm, if I'm doing the infranasal suture, I'll put a muscle hook in the supra-temporal quadrant and push the eye supra-temporally to expose more of the infero aspect of the eye and pass a, a single interrupted tenonylon nylon stitch uh, through the membrane and the conge to fasten it down in those areas. And I'll, I'll do one in each oblique quadrant. Sometimes I'll do one at the medial lateral canthus as well, depending on how uh, firmly it t- fixed uh, the membrane seems to be. And uh, once we're done with that, uh, we will put a, a usually a large symblepharon ring on the eye, uh, and I think the the it's just basically a big almost like a conformer with a circular area cut out over the cornea. I leave the membrane on the cornea; I don't cut it out. In uh, kids, I don't worry about you know a week or two of both eyes are going to be covered, and I'm not worried about amblyopia developing in that short time frame. And uh, I think it's important to keep the keep the cornea covered with it. Uh, sometimes the patients, be, as they start to heal, they awaken more, and you have to kind of let them and their family know the vision's going to be really blurry. It's going to be like looking through cellophane, uh, but I think it's a small price to pay for uh, keeping the eye protected during the acute phase. When I With all the stitches, I also leave the tails long, like it's three, four millimeters long, so they lay flat on the eye and aren't poking up. So, that's the the basics of the procedure.
0: We'll end today's podcast here and pick up where we left off next time. Darren Gregory is associate professor of ophthalmology in cornea and external disease at the University of Colorado. His paper, Treatment of Acute Stevens-Johnson Syndrome and Toxic Epidermal Necrolysis Using Amniotic Membrane, a Review of 10 Consecutive Cases, appears in the May 2011 issue of Ophthalmology. ask questions of Dr. Gregory or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd@gmail.com. at gmail.com. As seen from here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.